It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly pre edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Broering. Each week we look at sports topics of local interest, and boy, do we have some this week for you. Uh, some of national interest, which actually ties into the local topic of interest this week, among other things. We've got a gambling segment where I got a feeling I didn't do very well last week. In fact, I'm pretty sure I didn't, and we'll see where that goes. Hopefully Rick did. And the the topic that I always like, where you can ask me a question on anything, where you can go to Twitter on the hashtag AskSkinnyAnything, send Rick your questions. Uh, sometimes we mingle them into the podcast in general. If we have some leftover of general variety, we'll ask them at the end. Um, so I always enjoy that. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Ryan Kiefer of Prime Lending. Rick, how are we doing on this finally cool, crisp mornings, cool, crisp nights, not very hot days. The leaves are changing. I'm not going to lie to you, man. I'm a sucker for that. I really am. I enjoy the I enjoy fall foliage. I really do. Yeah, well, we as we've talked about in the past for years on this podcast, we've got fall winter bodies like once we can put a quarter zip or a sweatshirt on we look better oh yeah perfect you know we're hanging out way better yeah so uh, i think that's always nice i like wearing jeans and those types of things sweatshirts and basketball season is back also tonight as we're recording this on thursday morning nku has its first public exhibition xavier has its public exhibition on friday and then we start the season for real on tuesday yeah, no doubt. It's 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 quickly upon us. Kentucky had a, a game last Friday, an exhibition with Kentucky Wesleyan. Um, so yeah, I mean we are we are fast approaching that time of year where there's nine thousand things going on at once. At least the World Series got over before all that started for a change. Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about baseball and the playoff. Oh no, no, we didn't. That's actually no, the first no, we, time we've no, mentioned right. it. You're right. That's right. But we will preview the college basketball season later on in this podcast. But there's a lot to get to before we get there. So we'll start. With college football, the first college football playoff rankings of the season were released on Tuesday night. And as many locals feared, Cincinnati was left out of the top four, which featured Georgia, Alabama, Michigan State and Oregon. The unbeaten Bearcats still have the best ranking ever for a team from outside the Power Five conferences at number six. But they sit behind three teams in Alabama, Oregon and Ohio State at number five that have already been beaten. Skinny, what was your takeaway from the release of the first college football playoff rankings of the season? That, that they've decided that they don't want a group of five team and stop bothering us. Please just stop bothering us with your undefeated nonsense power group of five teams. Um, the other takeaway is this, and, and I guess it's the part of this that's always bothered me is the complete, it's not completely subjective. I say complete, that's not accurate because they do use some statistical models to, to, to play through this stuff, but it's still subjective. You don't know what the exact path to getting to the playoff is. You really don't. And that's where, Listen, the NCAA tournament process is not perfect, and we always argue about those bubble teams and how did they leave this team out of you know 67th place and all that. But you know what every single team in college basketball knows before the season even starts, Rick? You know what they know? There's a way to automatically make that tournament, right? It's up to you to find a way to do that, whether it's when your conference, in some cases, not very many anymore, or when your conference tournament, you know what the parameters are. You don't know what the parameters are for any of this stuff. And that's what bothers me. And that's why I go back to, I really wish that, and it seems so simple. I, I know I keep beating this dead horse, but it's it's so simple to me. You have five power five conferences. I can't believe they haven't lobbied for this together as a group. Each one of them gets their conference champion in. If that means it's nine and three UCLA, that's fine. You know what? 17 and 12 teams win conference tournaments all the time and get in. And oh my God, they might spring an upset and they shouldn't even be in, but they played their way in. 
Same thing for that case. Hey, they got in. Then you give your next one to the best group of five team. That's going to always be an 11-1, 12-0-ish team, whether it's UC or BYU or whomever. Uh, although BYU technically is not group of five, they're independent. But you know what I'm saying? You still have that opportunity to pick that. And then you got two good at-larges. At that point, yes, there's going to be some argument. But guess what those teams can't say that might get left out of the process? You had your chance, and you didn't win your conference. Too damn bad. And that's my biggest takeaway from all of this. Is it's just, I don't know where the line is for any of those teams, basically. The conclusion that you end up having to come to is it's an illogical system to have a quote-unquote playoff that doesn't have an automatic bid system, that doesn't have teams playing like schedules. There's really no way to do this logically. And so you're left with this weird subjective thing where there are very clearly certain interests that are being fed over others. I mean, it's it's frustrating, obviously. And if you're a UC fan or a fan of another group of five school, this sucks. But even more so, aside from the UC stuff and just pinning it all on UC, I just was annoyed at how they came about their decisions. Like, okay, Alabama's number two, which really doesn't make any sense based on resume or what they've done so far this season, other than, you know, they play the SEC, they play an overall difficult schedule, but they don't have like these huge signature wins or anything like that to really boost their resume over some of these other teams who didn't have a loss to Texas A&M is fine. If you want to go by the eye test like that and say, look, we just believe based on metrics, based on the computer ranking systems out in Vegas, Alabama is clearly the one of the top two or three teams. And so we're going to put them at two. I can but don't give me the resume. That. Well, I, I can live with that. But then when you get to like Oregon, for instance, and Michigan State, that doesn't make sense anymore. Like you are clearly going off of, in Michigan State's case, an unbeaten resume and a big win. And in Oregon's case, one big win over Ohio State, which seems to outweigh uh, a top 10 win for UC over Notre Dame, because otherwise those resumes are very similar and UC doesn't even have a loss. So, that, that's my issue is it's like at, at one point you're putting Alabama at number two, very clearly off an eye test situation and you're leaving and Oklahoma great, and, and, undefeated and, and, down at number eight as an eye test situation. But then how does that equate to Michigan state and Oregon at three and four? No. And that's the other part to it is. So I, I listen, I like Michigan state. I like what they've done. I think it's a great story. You and I've talked about how they've been undervalued in our opinion all year from a betting perspective. And we've made some pretty good coin off of them. But I can't tell you the win over Michigan is better than a win at Notre Dame, can I? Can you tell me that? No, I mean, and, and if it is, it's slightly better. Oh, okay, 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 so hang on a second. So if it is, it's slightly better. I don't, I don't think it is, but based on the way they ended up ranking them, because what's Michigan, seventh? Am I doing that right? Are they seventh? I think. And Oklahoma's eighth, that's right. Yeah. They're seventh, Oklahoma's eighth, that's correct. Um, all right, so, so let's just call that a wash, if we will. And honestly, I still would lean towards the win at Notre Dame being slightly better because it was on the road as opposed to Michigan State being at home. Agreed. The week before, or two weeks before that, they had a bye the week before Michigan State did. Two weeks before that, they played at Indiana and were in a dogfight to win 20-15 to 15 without Michael Penix. And granted, Michael Penix was terrible the day UC played them. UC went to Indiana and won by two touchdowns. You want to do some, some apples to apples? There's an apples to apples for you. It really isn't. Because they were without their starting quarterback when Michigan State was all out to beat them. So so how does that make them better? I, that, that's the part for me. I can do some apples to apples there. And then don't give me, well, for Cincinnati, they're only, only real wins over Notre Dame. 
right? And you ranked them 10th. That sounds like a pretty good win to me. And you know what they don't have? They don't have a loss. Uh, boy, Oregon, Oregon, Oregon's win at Stanford. No, wait a minute, buddy. They lost to Stanford. Oh, what about Alabama? The win at Texas A&M? No, buddy. They lost to Texas A&M. Uh, I, it's so illogical. It makes you scratch your head. You know what honestly you would do if I was UC this week? I know this is cutting your nose off to spite your face. You know what I would do? I would tell ESPN, pack up your and get out of town because you're part of the problem. Goodbye. I don't want you here for game day. Adios. Yeah, I, I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to take the publicity and try to use it for recruiting purposes. No, you know what I would do if I was John Cunningham? Flow. If I was John Cunningham, I'd come on set and i just stick up a middle finger and go, this is for you, committee. Have a good day. Thanks for having me, everybody. Good night. I did see one of my favorite message board posts of all time where a UC fan suggested, and I don't think he was joking, maybe he was being partially tongue-in-cheek here, but that fans should show up to the college game day. So they prove that they still have a big time fan base, but they should all face the opposite direction and oh, not watch the ESPN broadcast to really I, I love take it. it to the man and show them that they mean I, business. I, love I thought it. was hilarious. I, I love it. Yeah, I love it. I, I you know, I, I, I hope, and part of me, honestly, part, part of me wonders this because this is all a TV show anyway, right? That's what this is. The college football playoffs and the championship are just nothing but a big TV show. That's what it is. It almost makes me think that, hey, if we stick them back here and they're coming to game day, can you imagine? It's going to be great backlash. It's going to be great theater. And it makes me really believe in some of that stuff, that this is all it is, is just giant theater. I don't remember where everyone was ranked and I wasn't as much into the betting numbers and stuff like that in the past. So I don't know exactly what the situation was for every year going back too far. But in recent years, I was more okay with the way they were going off the eye test or saying strength of schedule really matters. Because for the most part, when you looked at the top teams based off of the numbers and how would you project them in, in betting rankings and power ratings and all that type of stuff, it, it added up. It made sense. But that's not the case with this situation. That's well, and you know why? Michigan State and Oregon are not above these teams if you go off of the metrics or the eye test. And, and that's what, like, Oregon, to, yes, I agree that Ohio State is a better win than Notre Dame. And maybe it's even, like, a, another notch above Notre Dame. Maybe those aren't even really that comparable despite them both being in the top ten. But it's that much better that it makes up for a loss to a bad Stanford team right, with only right. three wins? That makes no against, sense to me at all. Unless you're really saying the, Colorado, a win over someone like Colorado means a whole lot more than a win over Tulane. I like yeah, ver- we versus doing? a close yeah, versus a close win at Navy that wasn't all that close. I think in the past though, Rick, and, and this is where it's kind of got it gummed up this year. It really does. In the past, you did have at least two to three clear cut teams that were better than everybody. Based on resume right. and based on, on on record and everything, you would always have Clemson, right, and Alabama, right, and then you'd always have probably that second team from the SEC lurking, and then you usually had undefeated Oklahoma, which then would go crap itself in the tournament, which was always that there, and usually Ohio State. I mean, there's always pretty clear cut to where these were the teams, and if somebody can beat them along the way, we'll shuffle it a little bit, but there really wasn't a whole lot of shuffling. This year, part of the problem is Oregon goes to Ohio State and wins, which is a great win, and I've told you that before. I think I think that win was going to usurp all, and it did. I, I, I'm, I'm not happy I'm right with that. But then for them to go and lose to Stanford mucks it up. For Michigan State to kind of climb through the ranks unbeaten and be a Big Ten team, and again, it's going to settle itself when Ohio State and Michigan State play each other. Um, but I think that's what's kind of gummed it up this year. And Alabama then losing in the SEC when they're the they're, – I can arguably say they're the second-best team from an eye test standpoint. But I think that's what's gummed it up is is here we are with just so much chaos past Georgia, underneath Georgia, that it's made for a mess. And I thought that would benefit UC, and it seems like it's going to harm UC more than help them.
if you've got all these Big Ten teams in the top 10, if Michigan State's only losses to Ohio State later in the year, are they out of it necessarily? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Are we sure? I, I think that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm 99.9% sure. Yes. I, I will almost say. I mean, because if, they if are, Oklahoma has a loss. It's funny. Oklahoma could be a team that goes undefeated that also doesn't make it. Can you imagine the Big 12? Well, and then how's that make you feel if you're a UC <laughs> fan? Not only do you have your current situation. Right. That just then you're going to that, stinks, that league. But the next conference you're going to has an undefeated team in it right now that is ranked eighth, lower than you were. And granted, they don't have the win you have. So no, I, and, that's right. And quite honestly, I, I was fine with them doing what they did with Oklahoma because oh, I, I don't think they've passed the eye test at all. They have not looked good and they've barely squeaked by a lot of these teams. So again, I was fine with that, but it just doesn't make sense when you get to Michigan State and Oregon, especially you know, I can live with the Michigan State argument a little bit more, but the Oregon one just makes zero sense to me at all. And I yeah. can't get over that. And you were right about that all along. I'll admit I was totally off base thinking that the loss to Stanford would preclude them. I just it, that makes no sense to me if we're comparing these top seven or eight teams. No, that's fair. Now, I will say this. Three of the last four games for Oregon are not easy because two of them are on the road and one is a rivalry game. They play at Washington this Saturday night. Um, Two weeks from now, they play at Utah, and and they're starting to get their act together. And they play a pretty good Oregon State team in the finals, and then they have to play a Pac-12 championship game. So their road is not easy, mind you. So there is a potential loss for them. That, That eliminates them. A second loss eliminates them. Michigan State, Ohio State will play an elimination game. The loser of that, in my opinion, is out. And then if Ohio State can win that game against Michigan State to eliminate them, knock off Michigan to eliminate them, then I do think that last spot, because then I think at that point Ohio State vaults to three. I'm assuming an Oregon loss. You're hoping for an Oregon loss. That eliminates them. Then it comes down to UC Oklahoma again. And Oklahoma still has Baylor, Oklahoma State, and then probably Baylor or Oklahoma State again. And the way they're playing, they could potentially lose that. So I do think as much as it sucks to sit here and look that they placed them sixth with, with the teams ahead of them that don't have better resumes, I do think there's a path that's not impossible for UC to creep into that top four. I do. The problem for them is they don't control their own destiny at all. That's right. And that's all right. of the teams around them do. All of that's the teams right. around them, if they win out, they find their way in. So they need help for just about everyone, the everyone you know, you, has you, to lose essentially. You you want you want the monkey in the wrench too? You want to know a two loss team that's got a shot? Alabama. Nope. Auburn. Auburn sitting with two losses. They can still get a quality win over Bama, and if they beat Georgia in the SEC championship game, I'm just telling you, I think they creep in with two losses. Beware of that. Fair Your enough. hope then is as Alabama loses to Auburn, and now Alabama loses to Georgia. And I had a buddy of mine that said he thought a two-loss Alabama still gets in over UC. I, I don't see. I don't see any scenario. Oh, other I than disagree. Auburn. I think Alabama with two losses will get in. I, I don't because I don't think they're going to have a quality win at that point. I mean, honestly, Rick, their wins are are not are not great. I mean, at, I, at the I know. time, at the time, I mean, at the time they beat 14th ranked Miami of Florida. Putting they're them, obviously terrible. Putting um, them at the in time, at number two makes no sense based off the resume. But I can get I can get behind the fact that they look like the second best team in the country. That doesn't bother me. Yeah, I don't think with two losses they I, I don't see because I think there's too many other one loss scenarios around them. I, I I just I don't see two losses. I do see two loss Auburn because of the quality wins they can get over Alabama, over Georgia. That might vault them in. And right now they actually sat in first ranking at 13th. Let me give you another one here, too. Notre Dame is is probably going to win out. They've got Navy at Virginia, which will be a bit of a shootout because Virginia can score. They can't stop anybody. Then Georgia Tech. And then guess who Notre Dame closes the regular season with, Rick? 
And this will be an interesting comparison because it's a possibility that you're looking at 11 and one Notre Dame and 11 and one Oregon, right? 11 and one Notre Dame closes its season at Stanford. Win that game by any margin. How do you not say, well, hey, hang on a second. We lost to a team in Cincinnati that you guys got ranked pretty good. And, and Oregon lost at Stanford. And then the flip side for Cincinnati is, well, wait a minute. We beat Notre Dame, which beat Stanford, which beat Oregon. Help me with that. But at the end of the day, you know it won't matter because they only applied the rules selectively when mm-hmm. it works for their argument. I mean, it just. That's right. No, there's no. And again, yeah, there's the no way to really apply it universally across the board because it's an illogical it's system. You're taking four right. teams from five power conferences and a couple others. And it just, yeah, there's no way to do this until they expand it to where we can make legitimate arguments about, okay, at least we know what we have to do to qualify. There is an automatic way for us to qualify each year. And if we don't do that, then it was on us. Right. That's right. Exactly. All right, Skitty, this was a question that got sent in, but I, this is the right time to talk about it. If Cincinnati were to play the five teams ahead of them on a neutral field, what would the line be? Would Cincinnati be favored against any of them? Let's start with Georgia. I, I think both of us no. think Georgia would obviously be favored. What do you think that they'd line be a, would they, be? They, 14 and a half to 16 and a half. I think Georgia's that good. Yeah, I was I, going. I think you I I think think UC'd have a hard a time to score. I think UC'd have a hard time to score. I do too. Alabama, what do you think for that one? I'll go seven and a half because I think UC would score on Bama. I think UC's defense is good enough to slow Bama. I, I Again, I don't think they're better than Bama. So on a neutral field, I'll go seven and a half. I think this might be one where the books are going to play the betting public a little bit. It's not going to be just the straight number of what where they think the teams are at. They're going to base it on what the public's going to bet here. I'm going to go higher. I'm going to go 17 and a half Alabama. No, wow. Um, I just, dude, hang on. I'm, I'm going to give you a couple Bama scores, though. I, I, I And I got to do this. L- listen, the loss to te- Texas A&M is one thing. But then 31-29 over what has turned out to be a god-awful Florida. And honestly, the, the, the Tennessee win, we laughed about it because I think it's the one your, your, your fiancé won her parlay on. Let's not forget, that was 28-24 in the fourth quarter before they blew it open late. And Tennessee is, is a very mediocre team. Yeah, no, I'm... I- I'm with you. I just think the numbers would probably say Alabama by nine or 10. And my guess is you'd get like another touchdown added on. Okay. Michigan state. What do you think? I'm going, I'm going UC four and a half. And I, and I, that's my line. I think UC is that much better than Michigan state. Michigan state finds a way to win games and I can't fault them for that. You certainly can't ding them for that, but they have some holes. Um, they, they, and they actually just lost one of their better receivers. Jalen, Jalen Naylor got hurt. I don't know how bad it was. I know he was in a walking boot during the game on, on Saturday. They do have my guy. I mean, I've got a future bet on my guy, Kenneth Walker to win the Heisman. So I'm kind of rooting for him to play this thing out, to be honest with you. But I mean, some of their wins just, they, they win, but they just don't do a whole, I mean, 48, 31 over Western Kentucky, 23, 20 in overtime over Nebraska. Um, uh, the 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 win against Indiana twenty to fifteen they again they were all out to come back to beat Michigan which is nothing wrong with that. that was a great game and uh, again kudos to them for winning and that was a fifty fifty proposition but I think UC's better I'm gonna go UC four and a half I was gonna say UC by two UC minus two what you laid out is exactly where I'm at I might have had Michigan State and Oregon reversed based off the eye test but when looking over some of the power rankings and and the metrics it seems like most of the computers are higher on Oregon than they are on Michigan state. So and I, I actually, just, I don't get that. I flipped these two a bit. I went with a pick them with UC and Oregon. 
That's exactly what I, I was going to go pick them as well because we're talking neutral field. Uh, you, you know, Oregon's got a, a, a three-point win over UCLA. They got a seven-point win over over Cal. Cal on the season is three and five. UCLA is, I believe, right around five. They're five and four. Um, yeah, I, I think Oregon's Oregon's dealt with injuries. I got to give them that, and they fought through those injuries. And they the win at Ohio State is impressive. There's no question about it. Um, but I, yeah, I'm kind of with you. I think I pick them. And finally, Ohio State. What would you have there? I think I'd go Ohio State 7.5 to 10 because uh, I just think their offense, even though UC's defense is good, they're still going to hang something in the 20s to low 30s, in my opinion. And I think UC would have a hard time keeping up. Yeah, I was going 12.5 here. Okay. So, Ohio State. And so, so. And so, yeah. And so, I've had this question asked to me on, on the Sports Authority. I know I had a couple of people that were mad at me about my answer, and I probably phrased it wrong. And I, I think I took the question from Chris Rankle wrong this past week. We've done it the last couple of weeks. And I kind of did it wrong. And he said, What do you think the rankings are going to be? And I, in my mind, I was thinking, What would I have the rankings be? And I said, I, I said, My rankings would be, and that was wrong because he asked the question a different way. So, I should have phrased it the way. I should have answered the way he asked it. It's a shame on me. And somebody got mad at me for my answer, which is fine. I said, my, my, in, in my opinion, I would have gone just my own personal eyeball test because it's subjective to me. I would have gone Georgia 1, Bama 2, Ohio State 3, UC 4, Michigan State 5, Oregon 6. I would have done the same first five as you. I would not have Oregon 6. I think I would have Oklahoma 6. Yeah, maybe just because of the undefeated portion of it. That might be right. But, man, they just bug me how, how they skate by bad teams. Yeah, and I'll be honest. Like, watching Notre Dame and Oregon, I think Notre Dame's a better team than Oregon. Might be. But here we are. So I'm looking at the college football playoff rankings, and after that, I don't know that there's another team that UC wouldn't be favored against. I'd be fascinated to know what the Oklahoma line would be. Yeah, I would too. Um, on a neutral field. I think you. I think Oklahoma might be favored just because of the way books try to do things, but I think it would be a low enough favorite that they were trying to reel Oklahoma money in, or maybe vice versa. I mean, I think I told you earlier. I I thought UC be favored at Notre Dame, and they were, and so maybe on a neutral, the way Oklahoma's playing, UC is a field goal favorite. Well, yeah, and based on what the committee did with Oklahoma ranking well, them, good eight, point. you have to wonder yeah, what point. all the numbers say about them. It yeah, must not point. be good. They have not yeah, been right. convincing in hardly any of no. their wins this year. So no, they needed they needed a quarterback stealing a ball from a running back to basically have Kansas not go down and beat them. They're they're an interesting case study as well. UC has been the bigger story, but Oklahoma is an interesting team to watch too this year. Yep. It's been like you know, I mean, as much as we sit here and say this system's terrible, it's corrupt, and it's it's and it is whatever it's broken it is all those things but it's also got everybody talking about it with great intensity and it's a lot of drama so it's obviously working in a certain respect too yeah i just like things that are cut and dried i like to know what what my parameters are to do x y or z all right let's switch gears here to the nfl coming off of the bad loss to the jets last week the Bengals will take on afc north rival cleveland and cincinnati on sunday at 1 p.m in a game that can be seen on local 12 the Bengals are currently 2-0 in the division with wins at pittsburgh and baltimore but skinny how concerned should Bengals fans be after last week do you think it was an out of character performance for the Bengals or a red flag for a team that might have been overperforming early in the season 
I'm, I'm going to go out of character performance, and, and this team has done a good job of bouncing back. I mean, in, in major ways, you know, bouncing back from that awful loss to the Bears to go to Pittsburgh and, and win convincingly, bouncing back from that disappointing loss to Green Bay that you could have won, and you know, with a couple of kicks uh, in in that game, and then going to Baltimore or going to Detroit and rolling them, followed up by rolling Baltimore. I mean, they've they've done a really good job of compartmentalizing, putting things behind them, and, and moving forward. And I think that. You know, maybe, again, last Sunday was just one of those weird outliers. Um, there's been a lot of explanations for the defense. I'm going to write a piece today, a column that, uh, you know, that I think Lou Anarumo should should be way more aggressive with Baker Mayfield because I'm going to guess with, with his shoulder, um, they're going to try to limit his exposure to getting hit. They love the screen game, which the Jets used effectively. I think he's going to check it down a lot. He, he doesn't throw to wide receivers a ton, as Odell Beckham Jr.'s father has po- pointed out. He doesn't throw to his son at all. Um, they use the tight end quite a lot. It's kind of almost a Jets recipe, right? Um, and, and, you know, I, I thought Lou was pretty honest in a couple regards on Monday when we talked to him. One of them was he talked about he thought the linebackers took too deep of drops in that game. I asked Logan Wilson that yesterday. And I was fully expecting a hem and haw answer from him. And I, I kind of phrased it of, hey, Lou said on Monday, you guys might have dropped too deep. A, is that correct? And, and B, what maybe led to that? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, I, I probably took too deep of drops a lot of times. And I said, is that just kind of how to habit? And he said, yeah, you're trying to usually take take those deep crossers away and you're inviting them to check it down. And he said, well, at that point, then that's when we didn't tackle and that's when it came came, came to fruition to get us. So I think you're going to see if if that's the, the game plan for Cleveland, which I assume it is, heavy run game, obviously, if they lead the NFL in rushing um, and, and they'll, they'll use that big offensive line to do that. And then a lot of a lot of dinks and dunks, a lot of check downs, a lot of quick outs to wide restore to tight ends. I, I think you'll see a, a much different game plan of either more aggressiveness in the blitz up the middle to pressure Mayfield to give, give it up quickly, then try to take away a hot read, try to take away the check down, make him throw over the top. I mean, I, he doesn't have receivers. I don't think they can really kill you over the top. They don't do it very much. So I, I think, A, he needs a different game plan for this week. And I think B, you're going to see it. I think that was a live and learn of, uh, you know, Zach Taylor said on, on, it was either Monday or I think it was Monday, of the question was asked about why not be more, a little more aggressive. And it was, well, you know, with young quarterbacks, sometimes you want to see if they can drive at 75, 80 yards. Okay, that's fine. You saw that once or twice. Time to fix that. And so, I, again, I, we talked about this Sunday night. I was disappointed in Lou Anarumo's game plan. I'm a big fan of his. Um, I, I think he's done a really good job especially now that he has his guys. I didn't think they adjusted very well. And and he even talked about, you know, we, did, we didn't coach it very well. And there's games where, listen, you've coached, I coach. I walk away sometimes going, what else could I have done differently? And then you go, you know what? Next time I play them, we're going to do this. Or next time I face something like that, I'm going to do that. And in the moment, you sometimes think, I'm going to do what we do. We're going to do what we do. I mean, dude, I've, there's plenty of times I leave a press on against the team when I'm the dumbest guy ever because like they're just going through like, but by God, I'm going to do what we do. Next time you're like, nah, I'm not going to do what we do. I'm going to do what's going to help us win the game. So I think some of that took place on, on, on Sunday. So I think it is an outlier. I would say it's an outlier too. And the main reason for that is because the issue was the defense and it was Luana Rumo. If it was the play calling and the offense, I would be like, you know, this has been a major concern for every step of the way with this Bengals team since Zach Taylor took over. We've talked about it plenty. That would make me more worried. The fact that it was the defense and Lou that, kind of where the issue last week. I do think they've been more consistent this year. I do think they have higher odds of of getting it fixed and not being their early performance, not being a fluke at the same time. I get your point there at at the end, but like when Logan Wilson and Lou Anarumo are talking about they're dropping back too deep, the linebackers are too deep. Am I crazy? Or is it like, how, how does it take a film session after the game to realize that when every fan, you and I included, everyone watching that game in real time is going, 
it looks like the middle of the field is wide open. Your linebackers are non-existent. You're giving them exactly what they're trying to take against you because they have a quarterback making his NFL debut. I just don't understand not making the adjustment. And again, if it's a stubborn thing of being like, we still thought we had the right game plan. We were doing it intentionally fine. But to get to the point where you're like, oh, after the game, we watched the film and we noticed that maybe we were dropping too deep. It's like, well, what the hell were you watching during the game? Like, what was Lou seeing? Because we all saw that. And there was a portion of the game where the defense was getting stops too, doing that, right? I mean, because they came from 7 nothing down to take the 17-7 lead, and then at 17-17, they expanded to 31-20. At that point, you're thinking, hey, at 31-20, at this point in the game, let this kid check it down all he wants. We'll let him check it down and use clock. And it, and it ended up backfiring. And I think... I think that was some of it too, of sometimes you manage clock as much as anything else and, and, and you're willing to give up those completions short. And some of it, again, they missed 15 tackles. I that, can't discount that, that fact issue. of it. Yeah, that yeah, was that, a big issue. And that's fixable, but that's fixable. If this was an issue all season long on a consistent basis, then you go, here we go again, can't tackle anybody. Well, 15 missed tackles for this defense is out of the norm. So that's why I go. I also go back to the outlier portion of it. And like we talked about in that post-game podcast, If you're going to play this defensive style that bend but don't break, keep everything in front of us, let them drive it, but don't let them score type defense, you got to tackle. Like if you don't tackle in that defense, you're just giving up giant chunk play after giant chunk play. And the Bengals were allowing them to take low risk chances in their passing game that were equating to big gains because they couldn't tackle. Yeah. The other part, back to your point, and I'm not disagreeing with it. I'm just trying to give an explanation for why I think it happened. Um, uh, for me, I'm I'm with you. I, I think at some point I try to heat Mike White up and go, let's see if this kid can process the game as quickly as it's going to come at him here in a minute. And I think that's the same for Baker this week. I know Baker can process it quickly. He's been a starting quarterback in the league and had success for a handful of years now. But he's also due dealing with a really bad left shoulder. Do you think he wants to get banged on that seven, eight, nine, ten times in the game? And I'm not talking about anything dirty. I'm just talking about, you know, as he's releasing it on on deep drops and and waiting for deep crossers to come open or deep out routes or deep corner routes, that he's going to stand in there and take that punishment? I don't think so. I don't think they want to expose him to that either. Well, and while Baker's had success, he's also erratic. He's known to make some weird decisions and do goofy things. So, yeah, I'm with you. You got to put as much pressure on this guy as you can. Skinny, it was reported on Wednesday that Browns coach Kevin Stefanski told his team Odell Beckham Jr. was essentially no longer with the team. Uh, Beckham supposedly wanted to be traded at the trade deadline. His father also went on social media to rip Baker Mayfield while he was breaking down video and pointing out all the times that Mayfield was refusing to pass it to his son. Just a bizarre AAU dad situation going on out there in Cleveland. How much of an impact do you think that will have on Sunday's game? I don't think a ton. It'd be one thing if if Odell Beckham had caught 41 balls for 626 yards and seven touchdowns this year. Then you're going, hey, they're taking a big piece of their offense out of it. There is the drama to it. But, you know, watching what Baker said yesterday of, uh, you know, if I I got the guys out there around me, I'm going to have trust in them and, 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 and hopefully they trust me and. Um, you know, I think he's ready to turn the page on Odell. He said some nice things about Odell, but I, I do think that I think he's fine without him because it's less drama for him. But yeah, listen, I, I, Odell Beckham Jr. is not the player he was three for whatever reason. It could be a Baker Mayfield issue. I think some of it's an Odell issue. Odell, um, this year he's one of the worst receivers in the league in yards after catch. He's one of the worst in yards after contact. He's one of the worst in, in, in catching targets. He's spectacular catching balls one handed. He drops a lot too. And some of this, you can argue, and, and I know his dad pointed out in the Instagram, and some of it is alarming where you're like, damn, that dude's wide open. Why is he not throwing it there? You know what? If you ain't trusting a guy to catch it, guess what you're not going to do? 
throw you're the not going to throw it to him unless you have to. Unless you absolutely have to. So I do understand some of that from Baker Mayfield's perspective. I understand the frustration on Beckham's, I guess, dad's part. I mean, I think it would probably be more on Odell's part too. But no, I don't think I don't think this affects the Browns whatsoever. Um, he's just not a focal point of their offense. If he was, then I think it would be a huge factor. It really comes down to a matter of how much is the drama an issue for the team? Is it a distraction? Is it too new? Is it too raw? Are, are they in turmoil over there in that locker room? Or and this is what I tend to think is the case, is everyone just ready to move on from Odell, which is the case every time he's anywhere. It seems like no one really wants to be around this guy longer than a year or two. And it seems like it's run its course in Cleveland. They're all done with them. And probably guessing based on, you know, Baker Mayfield said all the right things in his press conference, but it also had a little bit of an air of, look, I've done all I can. We're kind of ready to move on from the guy and have yes, him yeah, not out yeah. here anyway. So uh, I'm not going to say it's addition by subtraction in terms of their talent level. But Might be. No, not from, from a, talent, but but just from a standpoint from the, of not having to deal with his antics. I think they're all fine with that, if I had to guess, being adults and professionals. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, again, if you're losing some huge productivity that the Bengals would have to scheme against, then okay, that's one thing. But But you're not. You're just not. Yeah. All right, Skinny. College basketball season is upon us, as we talked about at the top of the podcast. And local college basketball teams are playing their final exhibitions this weekend. The season will officially begin on Tuesday before we have our next podcast. So let's do a quick trip around all the local teams and give me what you think will be the biggest strength and the biggest weakness or question mark for each team. We'll start in reverse order than what everyone seems to normally do around here. Let's talk about NKU first. I think the biggest strength is they're going to be their ability to get downhill to the rim offensively. Bingo. I think they got, I think they got a lot of guys that can do that, including my guy, Sam Vincent. I I just think they've got a lot of guys. And at that level, and this is not a knock on the league. I think you made a really good point a couple of weeks ago when the, or maybe it was last week, whenever the the preseason poll came out about how many different teams uh, got a first place vote. And and there's some real good, I mean, the Baldwin kid coming in is a real talent, but the, the league, I mean, you're not going to have seven foot rim protectors in that league. So if you can get to the rim and you got guys that can shoot on pitch outs, you're going to be really, really hard to guard because they're not stopping you from getting to the rim in that league. They're just not. That's the exact thing I had in my mind was scoring in the lane and around the basket, getting into the lane to make those plays last year. It felt like Trayvon Faulkner was kind of the only guy going into the season that could do that. Now, Marquez Work proved that he was somewhat capable, though he needed to add some weight to be a little more physical on his drives. And Bryson Langdon did a good job. But this year, all of a sudden now you've added a guy in Sam Vinson that is going to be in the lane constantly. You have more confidence and know what you're going to get out of Marquez Work and, and Bryson Langdon. Uh, I, I'm with you. I think this team is going to be able to put a lot of pressure on the rim. And hopefully that equates to them getting to the free throw line more often because they didn't do a lot of that last year. The, 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 I guess for me, I guess the, the inexperience and maybe the, the lack of, I don't want to say cohesion because that's not fair because I'm not at practices, but I, I think there's, there's enough new parts. I guess that would be the weakness for me is how does that mesh? Yeah, for me, I'm still worried about the three-point shooting for this team yeah. because that was a major issue for them last year. And with the style that they play, Darren Horn will let them push the ball up the floor and, and shoot a quick three if they've got it. Now, their tempo doesn't tend to be quicker because of the style that they play once they get in their half-court offense, but he's willing to let them let it fly. Last year, they just didn't have enough guys who could hit. So this year, Sam Vincent, I think, will be a, a better three-point shooter than what they've had in the past at the point guard position, but I don't know, as a freshman expecting him to shoot a high percentage, 
usually doesn't work out so well. So, you know, Marquez Warwick hopefully shoots a higher percentage. David Bam can shoot a little bit from the front court position. So we'll see, but I still have major question marks about how well they'll be able to shoot it from the outside. Let's move on to Kentucky skinny. What do you have for their strengths and weaknesses? Um, I'm going to go with versatility, versatility, scoring the ball. Um, I think they've got so many ways they can score it this year, whether you throw it into Shibway for an easy bucket down on the post or him getting offensive rebounds, um, which they didn't have a lot of last year and, and, and get his key stick back. They got all kinds of shooters all over the place for a change. And you got two big time point guards, Ty Ty Washington, Severe Wheeler. I, I think this Kentucky team scoring wise is going to be really, really dynamic. Yeah. Along those same lines, I would have just said three point shooting. It felt like last year, Unless I'm forgetting, I think they only had two guys that you could Min- really rely on to make a three-point shot. Yeah, Min- 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 and Allen. And, yeah, and, and and right now they're like eighth and twelfth, uh, eighth and tenth on the depth chart. Right, and also when you were trying to get those guys shots because they weren't really your most talented or your main guys, it was almost like you were force feeding them. It was awkward. You're kind of having to go outside what you do to get them a look and and run maybe a set play for them, run them off some screens, something like that. This year, especially with Ty Ty Washington, who really looks like he can shoot the ball as a freshman point guard with deep range, it just feels different. You're going to have two or three guys in every lineup that you have with with Grady out there and C.J. Frederick to go along with Washington and Mintz and and potentially Allen in different lineups, although I think his role is going to be decreased. I think their three-point shooting is going to be much better, which will lead to that versatility, as you alluded to, because they almost always have the athletes. They almost always have a guy that can drive and get downhill. This year, they do have some size inside with Shibway, but they they need a three-point shooter. And Cal, just, that hasn't been a big part of his offense really for the last five, six years since it's become a huge focal point of the college game. I'm thinking this year you'll finally see his team shoot more threes. Yeah, and, and make more, not just shoot more, but make more. That's, that's yeah. the other part. But, it's great but to shoot need, them. You got to make they, them. But they need to take more, period. Because even, yeah, no, you're right. I agree. You know, even a couple of years back, they shot like 36%, but just ranked 300th in terms of attempts. So, and and, and that's where you go back to Shibway being a factor on the offensive glass, too. You know, hey, guy misses one on occasion, right? I mean, you're, you shoot 38%, 40% as a team, and you make them. That's pretty damn good. That also means you're missing every six of every 10. You could use a stick back or two now and again off of those. I think Shibway gives you that opportunity as well. What about weaknesses? I got two. Um, I know we're trying to go one and one here. I'm going to go with two. I'm going to go the fact that there is only one basketball for all these scorers and options we're talking about. And you're meshing a bunch of new pieces together doing that. And you have two ball dominant point guards. Again, that's that I don't mean that to be a complete negative, but it can be a weakness. The other one to me is, is clearly defense. Um, and, and, and they don't really have great rim protection, if Shibway gets in foul trouble, is Lance Ware going to be the guy that can can step in there and give you some minutes? Uh, so those are kind of twofold for me. And, and I think Cal's usually pretty good at meshing all that talent together and and getting them to play as one. I I, that, I you know as much as I bang Cal for a lot of stuff, I think he's really good at that. And he's he's melded a bunch of five star guys who are going to the NBA into a pretty cohesive unit usually. But the the one basketball thing for me and five guys who can score can can sometimes be a problem. Yeah, I think that's the issue that I'm most concerned about, too, is how do you define those roles, mostly on the offensive end? He's always good on the defensive end, and I I do question their personnel a little bit more on the defensive end this year. But in terms of being selfless and, and getting guys willing to play defense, he's always good about that. Offensively, though, especially the last two years, 
you've seen some issues in terms of guys accepting their roles and figuring out their roles on the offensive end. This is a much different roster for Cal too. How, how willing is he going to be to, to let some of the older, more experienced guys, you know, maybe a Davion Mintz or a CJ Frederick are your best options because you need the skill and you need the shooting, but that might mean not playing a, a young point guard like Ty Ty Washington as many minutes as you, you want to. And don't get me wrong, I think Washington is going to be great and he's going to play a ton. But I'm just saying in general, I'm going to be curious to see how he defines all those roles and does he have to maybe take a, sh- a little bit of shine away from one of his young guys because he's got to play a veteran that gives them more skill and less athleticism and less defense than he typically does. Will he be willing to make those changes? And that's that's kind of what I'm most focused on for UK from a question mark standpoint. I, I do think they have a chance to be real. They have a chance to be great. I mean, they, I think you so got too. every piece just about you can imagine. I mean, you really do. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Normally, they're always getting the benefit of the doubt, and people are just assuming, hey, there's so much talent. They bring in five stars, McDonald's All-Americans all the time. They'll figure it out. They're going to be good enough. We'll put them in the top five or top ten. This year, it's almost the opposite. It's like they had such a bad season last year, and everyone's looking at it from a standpoint of like, well, they're going to have to prove it first. But I also think everyone realizes that if this team reaches its potential, they're probably Final Four good. Yeah, agreed. Absolutely. All right, Cincinnati, what do you think about their strengths? Um I, I I'm I'm gonna go I'm gonna go with the fact that you've got some depth. I don't know how that depth plays itself out. Um, but I do think with what you did in the transfer portal, what you have coming back, you've got some 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 depth. And, and I think they'll they'll buy into defending the way West Miller wants with the pressure. To me, the it's it's more about what the weakness is. The weakness to me is who gets you twenty when you need twenty. Who does that? Who's going to go do that? Is David DeJulius doing that? Is Jeremiah Davenport doing that? Is who's and listen? You don't always need twenty, but against somebody on the road somewhere, you're going to need somebody to go get you a big game. Do they have a guy that can do that? Yeah, from that standpoint, on the scoring and shooting in general because three-point shooting is a major question mark for this team too i have major concerns about where they'll be in that regard and maybe they'll be able to just muck it up enough and make it ugly enough that in conference play in the american they can do a ugly version of houston or ugly version of the mick cronin uc teams what they did in the conference and and when they're win enough games to to be in contention that way but i do unless John Newman is really going to be a, a go-to type threat on the offensive end. And, and David, DeJulius, is he? I, I don't know. Cause most of the points that I've seen from the Clemson, even when, you know, his best year where he scored more was more hustle points and transition points and not a guy that in the half court gives you the skill level to either knock down shots or really break guys down off the dribble and create plays. So I think David Julius will take a major step forward. He's the guy I expect to be the focal point of their offense. But will he take enough of the step forward and will Newman be good enough offensively? And then will Jeremiah Davenport, I think you can count on him as kind of that second or third guy to be a good scorer. But I don't think he's great as a go-to guy as your number one. So if all three of those guys are, are stepping up on any given night and it gives you enough firepower, then maybe this team could really overachieve. But I have major doubts about that end of the court. Yeah, I mean, I guess in theory you could have eight Guys average between 8 and 13, and that might work. And maybe that's exactly what's going to happen. 
but I just don't see that go-to guy. When you need one, you need, you need a big game or you need a bucket. Who is that guy? I don't know if DeJulius is that guy. I got to see it before I believe it. I, I do think this, I, I mean, I, I think they're going to have to get a lot of things out of their defense, you know, both in, in terms of stops and, and probably even some transition production. Um, if they can get that, and I think they got some athletes to do it. I mean, I think Jeremiah Davenport is just a great defender. Um, you know, Newman, you know, coming from Clemson, maybe he does it. I, Julius, you know, Mike, Mikey Saunders, who can fly. Um, can you create some stuff with your pressure and, and get some easy buckets that way? Because I think they're going to have to do it. I just don't see them as a really dynamic scoring team at all. You were mentioning the the depth when you were talking about their strength. I think especially inside, that's what I would say, their size. They have a lot of big bodies. The guys that are 6'9", 6'11", 7 foot inside, they've got five, six bodies for those two front court positions. And, uh, and, and you know what you can size. do? Yeah. You know what you can do with that, Rick? You can gamble on a perimeter. You can gamble in traps. You can gamble that, Hey, I've got a guy back there. That's going to keep you from getting to the rim. And we're going to take chances out there on the perimeter with some, some, some we're going to miss some, we're going to get a trap that they're going to throw around and they're going to go to the rim. And hopefully we got a rim protector there. So I, I think I, that they're, they're really going to be an interesting watch, especially in the non-conference to see how they kind of evolve. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like you're, the expectations for Cincinnati are all over the place from what I've seen. And none of them sound wrong to me. You, you could tell me anything about this team right now. And I'm right. like, okay, I guess I can yeah, see that. Right. I mean, right. I don't know. All right. And Xavier, finally, what do you got on them? Well, I'm going to let, I'm going to let you lead it off. Cause that's the team you cover. So, you know, I'm far better than I do. I've got would, a couple of points, but, but I, I mean, I'm more interested in your take first. I would say strength is going to be the backcourt depth. I just think when you look at, the guys they are starting, whether it's Dwan Odom or Paul Scruggs at the point, either way, both of them are going to play a ton of minutes and they're both going to be in the lineup together at times, both really good. And then you've got Nate Johnson to go at one of the other wing spots and Colby Jones, who I think has the potential to be the best player on this team, potentially, as long as he's willing to be an alpha and be more assertive on the offensive end and take control a little bit more often. He has to be willing to maybe even step on the toes of Paul Scruggs and Zach Freeman when he gets back a little bit more for this team to really reach their potential. Cause last year, what they had wasn't quite good enough. They're decent, but not quite enough. And they were missing one of those top end guys to take control, especially late in games and late in the season. So I think Colby Jones could be one of those players. He he wasn't as much of a scorer coming in. He's going to have to bring a little bit more of that part of his game out. But uh, on both ends of the court, he can really give them a lot. So that and then, you know, again, off the bench, you've got a couple more guys in Adam Kunkel and even Kiki Tandy. I mean, again, I don't expect him to play a big role, but he is a guy who's proven he can score 20 points against a Big East opponent. And the difference for Kiki is coming into last year, we were talking about him being a second or third leading score on this team and a major option. Well, now we're talking about him being the seventh guard option off the bench in the backcourt. It's so crazy. The backcourt depth that they have is really strong. I think that's really where the strength of this team lies. They do need to prove they can shoot it from three-point range better, though. They they seemingly have the guys, but Adam Kunkel, for instance, hasn't really ever shot all that well in his career yet for, no. in the college age. So uh, he's got to prove that. Yeah, I'm going to go with that as well. I, I think that's a good strength. I'm going to go with the weakness of just toughness up front. I mean, I, I who, who's going to provide you some upfront toughness, especially and well, Freeman really doesn't provide that, but but right. you know he gives you at least he gives you a great offensive threat, and, and they're going to miss him until what Christmas or January even, and and, yeah. and maybe that's it's going to sound stupid probably because maybe that's a good thing because you got you're going to have to force feed some guys in there whether it's Nunji, Deontay Miles, whatever Ben Stant, whatever. 
Um, but to me, it's front court toughness and, and who, who provides that. Yeah, I think that's definitely the biggest question. I would say to add to it, did they upgrade the defense and the shooting enough? Because right. Right. last year's shooting from three point range just wasn't good enough. And you look around, it's a lot of the same guys, and you're just saying, well, they should be better. You know, I don't know that Jerome Hunter and Jack Nungy are going to change your three point shooting. Now, granted, you're adding a couple of shooters at front court positions. So maybe that will just give you an, enough options that you will be better. But Jack Nungy ain't stopping anybody at the rim, man. I don't care if he's seven feet tall. He just ain't going to do it. Well, and and that to your point about the defense, it's like, you know, you add those two guys and yeah, you got bigger, but will you be able to control the glass better? And will you be able to protect the rim better and defend overall just because you have more length? That still remains to be seen. And I I have my doubts about it. So the expectations are super high for the savior team, but I think there are still some question marks for sure. Oh, no question. Can I give you a buddy of mine? And I were talking last night about potentially an opening night lineup, especially without Zach Freeman. I'm going to run one by you. You're going to probably scoff at it, but could you have an opening night lineup of Dwan Odom, Paul Scruggs, Colby Jones, Nate Johnson, and Deontay miles. Uh, I think that would be very possible. Yeah. Okay. It's hard for me to gauge right now where Jerome Hunter is at in the eyes of okay, the staff. Yeah. I thought he came out and, you know, he was kind of the clear guy at the four because Zach Fremantle wasn't practicing and Ben Stanley was coming off his ACL surgery in the offseason. So he was clearly the guy as, as practice has gone on. I don't know if they're as high on him or if he's given them as much as he, he started out doing. So my guess would be Jerome Hunter would be the four. They want to go with a little bit bigger lineup, but I'll be honest with you, skinny, like their secret scrimmages. So we don't get box scores and everything, but based on what I've heard, Deontay miles had some issues with injury early on. So he came out of the game early. And at that point, Cesar Edwards was the only big man because Jack Nungy and Zach Fremantle weren't playing. So they did play a lot of time with a smaller lineup out on the court, most of the second half. So it it wouldn't surprise me to see them go back to a smaller lineup early in the season while Fremantle's out. And the other thing too, is if Dwan Odom takes a, takes a step forward where he just can take over a game off the bounce. And I think he's got that potential that, that opens up everything in my opinion. It really does. Well, there's a lot of people who watched this team last year and felt they were better with Dwan Odom running the show than Paul Scruggs, and that's not a I knock think on they Paul are. Scruggs as a no, player I think overall. It, 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 no, it gives Paul Scruggs that shooting role, which I think he's going to be better. I just, I think it, the trickle down effect is I think Dwan's better off the bounce, and Paul Scruggs is better off the ball. Yeah, and I mean Paul has always been a little more rough around the edges in terms of his ball handling, decision-making, playmaking ability. And he's taken on more of a scoring mentality and role. And that's what he needs with Dwan Odom. He is such a playmaker and it's, you know, get into the lane and find guys and they know to expect it from him. And he still has the athleticism, punch it on you at the rim or score uh, or get fouls. So a lot of dynamics to how they're going to situate the the point guard spot. And I've also thought about this, you know, as much as you say, well, Paul Scruggs and Nate Johnson came back for super senior season. You would assume that they are going to start and be given as many minutes as possible. You also have the dynamic of the transfer portal and what that means in today's day and age for college basketball. Dwan Odom has three years of eligibility left and you're yeah. counting on him to be your star point guard for those three years or at least a couple more, are you going to take the chance of frustrating him and and making him feel like he's not getting the the role he wants as the starting point guard? And on the flip side, can you convince Nate Johnson, hey, you know you're going to be on the court plenty. We need you to come off the bench to give us our our best chance at winning and realize 
he's got no recourse. I mean, he can't go anywhere else. Right, this is last right, year of eligibility. Right. So, you know, hopefully you don't lose the locker room doing something like that. But there's a lot of, you know, strategy that you have to think about here when when making these lineups in today's day and age when when transferring is is so prevalent. Yep. All right, Skinny, one more subject here before we get to our betting segment. The Reds traded Tucker Barnhart to the Tigers on Wednesday. In return, the Reds received Nick Quintana, a third baseman who was drafted in the second round of the 2019 draft. The Reds held a $7.5 million club option in Barnhart's contract with a $500,000 buyout. Nick Kroll had the following to say about the deal, quote, trading Tucker was a very difficult decision. Having been drafted and developed by the Reds, our entire organization has a connection to him and our fans love him. But going into 2022, hang on, hang on, hang on. Here comes the money graph. Fire away. But going into 2022, we must align our payroll to our resources and continue focusing on scouting and developing young talent from within our system. Skinny, what did you make of the Barnhart trade and Nick Kroll's comments? Um, I think it's alarming if you're a Reds fan. It's almost like, hey, we're getting ready to start over again. We're getting ready to sell off some guys. Have a good time, guys. We're, we're sorry. You guys didn't come to the ballpark. You know what? The best thing that can happen, honestly, is Bob Castellini sells his team. I, enough is enough. I mean, either you're in or you're out. Two years ago, it looked like they were in. Pandemic hit. Then they feel like, oh, well, we couldn't get fans, so now we're back out. Fans aren't standing. They didn't stand for it. They didn't like your team last year, guys. They didn't like you. They didn't like that you didn't do anything at the trade deadline. Again, I understood some of that. I bought into some of that. I'm sorry that Jesse Winker got hurt because I think it did compromise your chances down the stretch. But the bottom line is fans stop caring. And if you shed payroll, which is what they're going to do, and obviously then you know today the other news was the Nick Castellanos news, which we knew was coming, right, of opting out. That's no surprise. But I think there's a lot still on the table from a trade perspective. Sonny Gray, Luis Castillo, Wade Miley in all likelihood, not going to pick up. So, okay. Um, you know, the problem here is they haven't done a great job of developing young talent. Um, handful of guys, yeah, India, Stevenson's here, maybe Lodolo, maybe Hunter Green, um, Winker, I'll give them credit for, but it's, you know, if you're going to go that route, you got to hit way more times than you miss. And over the years, they've missed way more times than they've hit. Um, and then they saddle themselves with some stupid con, the Aki- Akiyama contract now in retrospect might be as dumb as it's ever come down the pike. Um, I think they're a mess, and and I don't know if Nick Crawl's the guy to get him out of it, and I sure as hell know that Bob Castellini isn't the owner to get him out of it. I don't understand why Crawl said this. I don't either. No unless, one... he want, unless he wants to say, guys, don't point the finger at me, boy. I'm being asked to shed payroll. I'm doing my job. I think that's what it was. I'm sure there are some super fans of Tucker Barnhart who are going to be sad about it, but I think every logical Reds fan for the most part understood that, yes, you know, Tucker Barnhart was probably not going to be with the team going forward. You had the Tyler Stevenson situation, so it made sense. And I think everyone knew this about Nick Castellanos coming too. So why go out of your way to make a statement that makes it sound like, Hey, we're going to be cheap this year. Just so you guys know, we're going to be cheap. Again. It, 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 and honestly, maybe what that? he meant is, and I don't believe he meant this, maybe what he meant is we're going to take Tucker's money and give it towards somebody else to help our ball club. I don't believe that to be the case, especially when you take the whole rest of it on focusing on scouting and developing young talent from within our system. That more sounds to me like, again, we're we're about to rebuild again. You better hang on tight because here we go with it. Yeah, in the micro, the trading of Tucker Barnhart and the shedding of his salary doesn't bother me whatsoever. It's Tyler Stevenson's time. I don't need to pay $7 million to a backup catcher for the most part. Um, and it's no knock on 
on Tucker. That's just what he was going to be. And it's time to move on from that. That, that part doesn't bother me whatsoever. And I wish Tucker well and good for them. They kind of did him a solid. They kept him in the Midwest. They got him out of the national league. Um, I think it was a win for, for all, all parties, but, but honestly, when you look at the kid, they got back, my Lord, he hit a buck 86 in rookie ball at 23 years old. This, that was literally the Tigers going here, take this slop off of our hands and we'll take the Barnhart guy and the money and we'll be good to go. Have a good day. I mean, you didn't even get a prospect back. You didn't even get a prospect back. No, he was, he was ranked, I think, 31st in the Tigers organization last year, the 31st best prospect going into last year. So, uh, and, and he go didn't have look a at good numbers, year people. at all. No, he was awful. Yeah. Awful. So, I, I mean, that, that was, I thought that was kind of comical when the quote, from the Reds about the guy they're getting in exchange was we think he might be able to be a usable player. That's yeah, not in usually class, good. It, dot 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 at Class A Daytona. <laughs> <laughs> I just love usable player is not typically what they say when no. they're excited about getting someone. So I mean, I think this offseason is going to be really interesting for what they do to shed payroll and then not add. It's one thing to shed guys like Tucker Barnhart. Again, in the micro, fine with it. If you want to take the 7 mil owed and put it somewhere else to allocate that, great. I think that's probably the, the, the move that we would all understand. But this sounds more like, here we go with salary dump time, kids. Stand by. We'll be back with you in about three to five years. Fans aren't going to stand for it. And at that point, honestly, Bob Castellini, best thing you can do, do the city a favor. Sell the team. Just sell them. You have failed. You, you've not failed miserably because you had some decent years. I don't know if I can give credit to you because then you signed Joey Votto to the big contract and then you didn't build around Joey Votto. And so then guess who became the bad guy for those years? It was, well, the Reds can't do anything because Votto's making 25 mil. Yeah, well, that's not his fault. Uh, you know, if you if you weren't going to build around him, then why even bother to say, did you think he was going to, people were going to come to the ballpark just to watch Joey Votto bat five times a game and watch him play one on nine? I mean, what do we do? What Good organizations don't do this. Listen, dude, the Braves were a playoff organization, went through a rebuild, and 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 won again, then went through another rebuild, and here they are back again winning a World Series. Well, and I think that's what really makes this tough to swallow from Reds fans and really frustrating because they were in a very similar spot. But you know what they did? They retooled, they added some guys to their roster, and then they made a run at the whole thing and won it. Like, that's exactly... Yep what Reds fans were asking for. And granted, it doesn't always work out like that. And they may not have been in the same type of position that the Braves were in, but it wasn't all that different. And the Reds just didn't even try. And that's what's so hard to swallow. And then you see a quote like this again, he doesn't have to say anything like this. He can be very obvious. If you're going to say, we're going to spend this money on bettering our team. And that's what you mean. Just say it like that and be implicit. Don't, don't say something like we must align our payroll to our resources and continue focusing on scouting and developing young talent from within our system. Cause you stink at doing that. Yes. Yeah. That's the part. And yes. it makes you sound cheap. It makes you sound like you're going out of your way to be vague and, and obscure and kind of dance around the question and let fans <laughs> down again for the second straight year. And quite honestly, well, you're going to let yourself than that. You're going to let yourselves down because fans fans showed it this past year, Rick. They, they just they, they were not interested in this team for whatever reason. They just weren't. Well, the first text I got today was from uh, one of my friends who was saying that my interest in the Reds from now on is going to be the same interest that they put into getting better or whatever. You know, I'm, right. I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it's essentially that I, it's just hard to care about this team when they, the management doesn't care. And that goes back to at that point, then Bob Castellini finds, find a buyer, find somebody to buy your club. If you, if you don't want to play, that's fine. I, listen, I, I don't expect you to lose money, but if, if, if you're, if you're not going to invest in your club, and and it's the valuation's gone up. Just sell it, sell it, and spread the wealth around your kids and have a good time with it. You were kind of addressing who else might be on the way out, but someone did ask from a asking anything perspective, who will still be around after the mass exodus? <laughs> um, 
Well, let's go position by position. Uh, Tyler Stevenson will be your catcher. Joey Votto will be your first baseman. Moustakas' contract is untradeable, so he's still going to be around. Um, uh, I don't know what they do with him. Um, India, clearly. Kyle Farmer. Jose Barrero. Winker. Um, Tyler Naquin is only three mil. I think you pick him up again. You try to get, get him back. Um, Senzel comes back from the minors. I think Suarez is on the table for a deal because it's not an awful contract. If some team thinks they can continue to catch a little lightning in a bottle or maybe get him and finally bouncing back after a couple of off years. And I know there's the kind of the belief of came on again at the end of the season. Maybe he fixed it. Maybe he did, but right as it, as it sits right now, you've got Mustakas on a contract that's, that's again, untradeable. You got Suarez on a contract that's probably tradable. Um, you can't play them both. Because India's playing second base, so that really leaves just one position, third base for the two of them. Do I really want $24 million or whatever it is invested in one position? Well, I guess I got $25 million invested in first base, but again, that <laughs> it's neither here nor there. But no, honestly, so do, I, yeah, do, I, want, do I want $50 million invested in two positions? Not the answer is no. Yeah. No, right. And, and the more movable contract is Suarez's. Um, I still fear at his age and the fact that he still runs into fastballs and can hit him out of the ballpark that there's a bounce back year in there, there in him somewhere. I fear it, but I, I I get it if they trade. If you just say, listen, enough's enough. Time to move on from him. Okay, I, I guess I can get that. So yeah, I, I think uh, I think those are the guys. I think in the rotation, I do think Castillo stays. You still got him under arbitration for another year. I think he gets free agency in twenty three. Tyler Malley obviously stays. He's the arbitration. Um, Sonny Gray's an interesting one too. I mean, I could see him being put on the block and see what you can get and see if teams. Um, you know, I, I think his injury history of late has maybe got teams questioning it a little bit, but um, his contract isn't awful to try to move. I don't think, and certainly Wade Miley, I think is gonna gonna move on. So yeah, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's a lot. <laughs> I mean, uh, I just went through it all. I guess I guess Shogo stays because again, his contract's pretty unmovable. Um, but yeah, I, I still think they're gonna shed more payroll. Uh, how many uh, rebuild years are fans looking at? Do you think here is it just uh, never ending? I think it's never Another ending decade. at this point. I, yeah. Until you can prove you can consistently get get arms and, and bats through the farm system on, on a regular basis. And they've done a little better job of that. But again, we're all holding out hope for Lodolo and Hunter Green, right? And, and I'm I so far they've been so good for the most part, um, which is great. But I, they still haven't proven it at the big league level. And then if you miss on those two guys, where are we at again? We starting again with Drafting a couple pitchers high, hoping they get through. Here they are. Here, here's your guy. Oh, no. they, they just haven't done a very good job of it, Rick. No, they have not. Anything else on the Reds, or is it time to talk some betting? Let's talk some betting. It was All not right. good for me last week. No, we both stunk. We were both 3-11. and 11. And here's the thing <sighs> that's really bad <sighs> about that is normally this – segment we do here does not equate to what happens in my real life i bet on other games in real life oh, and usually, it, it, equ- it, it equated to my real life i had well, a miserable weekend me too i was two and eleven so this was basically exactly what happened in real life and i happened to bet a lot of these games in real life so yeah it was terrible i was three and eleven you were three and eleven you are now 57 46 and one that's how ridiculously Sorry. you were up before that yeah I am now 53-50-1, and one, so still slightly above 500, although that profit margin is gone. And, and I'll be honest with you, Rick. When you saw all those big spreads in the NFL last week, it, it was the, the correction was coming because the big spread teams have been covering on a regular basis, and, and the correction was coming, and it did. Yeah, it was, it was a bad board all over the place. College, yep. NFL, I didn't like 
any of the games really and it proved that way so yes thursday night 8 20 p.m we've got the nfl primetime game and it is a stinker jets at colts colts are a 10 point favorite the total is 45 and a half yeah i think the mike white shows now on film and, and indy takes that away indy's defense is pretty good um you know, listen, with the Derrick Henry injury to the Titans, um, that suddenly then gives the Colts a new life at 3-5. and five. Uh, Disappointing loss for them to lose to the Titans, but I think they bounce back in a big way. I'm going to go Colts 27, Jets, Jets 10, so that's the Colts and the under for me. Colts and the under. I like the Colts here in this position as well. I'm going to say 35-14, so that's Ooh. the over. Colts and the over for me. I think this is uh, going to get messy here. Saturday at noon, we've got Ohio State at Nebraska. 14.5-point favorites are the Buckeyes. 65 is the total. Yeah, Ohio State's win over Penn State didn't do much for me. I, I, and maybe, maybe that shows you that Penn State does have talent, which they do, and that talent can bubble to the surface, and Clifford was healthier, so maybe I take that into account. Um, but I think Ohio State now sees it probably needs some style points too. Now, granted, it's got the clear path probably of win out and you're in. Um so I, I think they kind of take that and run with it again. Nebraska's garbage. Um, Scott Frost is probably going to get fired, and this is going to be another nail. They're, they're three and six. They're just terrible. I'll go Ohio State, 48, Nebraska, 19. So Ohio State and the over for me. Yeah, I like OSU and the over here too. Ohio State let me down last week, but – Nebraska is a disaster and you have to wonder how much longer these guys are really going to care about what's going on this year. Ohio state has everything to play for. um, And obviously the offense is is still explosive despite last week. So 14 and a half feels pretty good. I'm going to go, I would prefer it be 14, but I'm going to go 48, 24 here. So OSU in the over for me as well. Saturday, three 30. We've got Tulsa at Cincinnati. The Bearcats are a 22 and a half point favorite. The total is 55. Well, UC now knows it needs to do at least one thing, and that's start winning with style points again. I don't know if that does anything. It probably doesn't, but it, I think that's some motivation probably to, to move through this. Now, let's not forget the last two games, which I, I know for UC fans kind of feel like losses, right? Um, we're on the road. There are two home conference games. They beat Temple 52-3, UCF 56-21, and they are going to destroy Tulsa. I'll go I'll go by that same 56-21 score that they beat UCF by. UC 56, Tulsa 21. Night-night Tulsa, my former hometown. I love you. So there you go. UC is going to get the over by themselves, 56 points. over. Or the total is 55 for this one. So 56-21, UC and the over here. I like UC in the over as well. I'm going to go UC 49, Tulsa 17. I think you just get an absolutely pissed off UC performance. The offense has been too. able to get on track too. the last couple of weeks. I don't think that will be a problem in this one. And the nice thing for them is Tulsa likes to play fast. They kind of want to go up yes. tempo. And, and the thing that that will lead to against UC's defense is quick three and outs and getting the ball right back. So I think their offense will get multiple early chances to get going in this one. And uh, I-, I guess it's Jerome Ford will run the ball a little bit more successfully. Yeah, and they've had a hard time with that the last two weeks. A buddy of mine suggested I be the celebrity picker for this game for ESPN. I, I would take him up on it. I mean, I lived in Tulsa for, for a few years as a youngster. I went to some Golden Hurricane games. I know about the program. And obviously, being a pretty much a lifelong Cincinnati and otherwise, what about me as the guest picker, Rick? Yeah, you or Travis Kelsey? Well, it's... <laughs> I think the, the women of Cincinnati probably would prefer you. So yeah, I don't think that's that. Nah, sorry, maybe, maybe it was me versus Jason Kelsey. Yes, yeah. but not Travis. <laughs> that's right. 
Saturday at 7 p.m. We've got Tennessee at Kentucky. This is a pick 'em. The total is 56 and a half. Oh, how the mighty have fallen the last two weeks. I really thought the bye week for Kentucky was going to be good coming off the, the loss to Georgia. I mean, there's a lot of eggs in that basket of, hey, we got a we got a chance to take a big swing at this. If you pull the upset, you'd get talked about in national championship terms. Then they lost. And I would have said, okay, they're going to get beat by Mississippi State in, in, coming off the next week. Well, they had the bye week. Felt like, okay, kind of take a deep breath and just come to the realization Georgia's really good and we're really good and we're going to go down to Mississippi State and beat beat them and they didn't. And honestly, it was no fluke to it. Will Levis was awful throwing three picks. Chris Rodriguez fumbled one away. The defense wasn't very good. So this is really interesting to me. Tennessee's defense is just simply so bad that I think this is kind of, I don't want to call it a get-right game because I think Tennessee is going to score some too, but Tennessee um, just gives up points in, in bushel baskets to teams. I... I I, I, I'm going to go Kentucky 37, Tennessee 27. So Kentucky and the over for me. UK and over. We are on completely opposite sides in this one. And everything you said about these teams is accurate. If you would give me this game two weeks ago, I'm going Kentucky. No doubt. I can't believe it's a pick em. but based on what we've seen the last few weeks with this Kentucky offense, I'm, a little bit worried. They're going the wrong direction. They, they are big time, right? And Will Levis doesn't look like the same guy that he did uh, a it's couple awful. weeks ago. He's I don't know awful. if there's just enough tape out on them that people have figured out what the cats are doing this year or what's going on. But I'm going to go Tennessee to win this one outright. 28, 24 is my score. Tennessee and the under for me here. I, I get it. I, I can't tell you you're wrong in, in picking it based on the way that Kentucky's playing. I, I just think there was a little woe is us. The turnovers were a factor, and they've been a factor all year. That's that's the one thing. It's hard to believe they're six and two as much as they've turned the ball over and, and they're negative in turnover margin. But somewhere along the line, there's a correction to that too, um, and maybe it starts this week. Uh, I, that's why I just think if they don't turn it over, I think the offense rolls up some big numbers in this game. So I'm going to go with they don't turn it over and roll up the big numbers. But I I get your pick. It's it's more logical than mine. Mine's probably more heart than head. All right, let's go to the NFL Sunday 1 p.m. We've got Browns at Bengals. Bengals are two and a half point favorite, and the total is 46 and a half. Yeah, I know this looks like that 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 reel you in number of hey, the Bengals are still pretty good, Browns are scuffling, and oh, it's less than a field goal at home. And that's it's usually a sucker line, and I'm gonna sucker it in because I do think the Bengals do get a bounce back because they've shown they can do it this year. They've done it this year. Browns, when they've played good teams on their schedule, Rick, and good offenses. And the Bengals offense, I think, is starting to starting to crank up a little bit. Again, the slow starts are a little troubling, but They've gone now three straight weeks of what 34, 30, or 34, 41, 31 in three straight weeks. And this Browns team, when it's played some better offenses, they gave up 37 to the Cardinals, gave up 47 to the Chargers, gave up 33 to the Chiefs. And the Bengals are not in maybe some of those realms, but I think they're not too far away. I think the Bengals score somewhere in the in the maybe in the 30s again. I think they get to the 30 number. I don't think the Browns offense can keep up. For the last five games, the Browns have scored 17 points or less. Uh, I'm going to go Bengals in a convincing way. Bengals 31-17, so Bengals and over for me. All right, I've got them by a touchdown less. I'm thinking 24-17, so it'll be Bengals and under on my side. And I'm with you. The two-and-a-half-point line makes you look at it and go, man, sucker's line here, but... I think the Bengals 
I think there's a better chance that the Bengals win by two touchdowns, like you're saying, than there is that the, the Browns covered the spread here. I'm thinking the Bengals will be a little bit more conservative than you're thinking. The offense has been playing well, but I think we're going to see the defense get back on track. We're going to see more of the keep the ball in front of them, and Zach Taylor gets back to playing his conservative style on offense as well. I'm going a little lower scoring than you, but same sentiment overall. Sunday, 8.20 p.m., we've got Titans at the Rams. This is going to be a great Sunday night game. Rams are a a 7.5-point favorite. The total is 54. I was a little surprised by how high that that number was. Yeah, I'm going to play the under just because Tennessee relied so much on Derrick Henry, and then their passing game was predicated off play action to Derrick Henry. And there ain't no Derrick Henry, man. There ain't no guy turning two-yard gains into 50-yard bursts and carrying the load when you need him to carry the load. And I... You know, everybody keeps talking in terms of all these quarterbacks as MVP in this league. Derrick Henry is the MVP in this league. I mean, he, 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 you take him out of this offense, I don't think it's the same. Um, I'm really interested to see the dynamic that Von Miller um, brings as well, along with Aaron Donald. I just don't know how you block that front. They're already a great pass rushing front. I think without the threat of Derrick Henry, they get after Ryan Tannehill in a big way. I think the Rams have evolved into the best team in the NFL. I think that's starting to become clear cut, at least so far through eight games, eight weeks. Um, I'm going to go the Rams in a in a pretty convincing way here too. I'll go Rams 30, Titans 17. So the Rams in the under for me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm going 31, 17 on, on my end. It, without Derrick Henry, I don't. The whole the Titans' whole operation changes on both sides of the football. They're a completely different team in the way they approach things. So I, I just don't see it. So I'm going Rams and the under. We're both on the yep. under there. Both on the under. Yeah. All right, Monday night, 8-15, we've got Bears at Steelers. Steelers are a six-point favorite. The total is 40. Yeah, this is – listen, I, I got to give Pittsburgh credit. I don't think they're very good. Um, Mike Tomlin just can finds ways to win games. That was what makes him such a great coach. But they they win some ugly, and they're 4-3. and three. You don't have to apologize for it. This has an ugly game written all over it. Uh, Chicago is just – Listen, Justin Fields makes some dynamic plays, but he's not very polished as a passer. He isn't great at reading defenses yet. He's kind of in that one read takeoff mode. But that one read takeoff mode can create enough plays to keep a team around. Yep. I think the Bears hang around this one. I think it's really goofy, ugly. Like I'll go Pittsburgh sixteen to thirteen with a field goal at the end. So I'll go. I'll go Bears to cover and the under for me. We're thinking the same thing here. I'm thinking it's going to be a, a sloppy game and it could go either way at the end. I think the Bears will hang around. I'm just going higher scoring here. Steelers 24, Bears 21. So that's Bears and the over on my end. All right. There we go. That's it. So we have one topic here to wrap it up with. We mixed in some of those ask any anything questions throughout our sports segment because most of them were related to those topics. But we did want to touch on one other incident that happened during Halloween, and it involved a Texas football coach, a special teams coach. His name is Jeff Banks. And Jeff Banks has a bit of a history that's publicly known where he essentially left his wife for a famous stripper and four kids for a famous stripper named Pole Assassin who owned Springer Show. From the Springer show, and she owned an emotional support monkey. And skinny, this lady decided to hold some type of haunted house at her home on Halloween, and it turned into absolute mayhem when their emotional support monkey bit an 11 year old child, sending him to the hospital. 
And then she tries to take up for the coach and the monkey. That's the best part. She said the child had no business being there, that it wasn't invited, that it should have known better to be in the in the backyard maze, and, and that the, the monkey is not to blame. And the best part of this is all the stuff comes out now about the coach and the, and the stripper, right? I mean, that's the part that this guy comes off as just a complete scumbag, which he probably is. That That's the part to me that's the most interesting, the funniest part of, and the fact of her name just being called Pole Assassin. That, that is just, that is tremendous. I, honestly, if she comes dancing near me somewhere, I may just have to go just to see Pole Assassin and Monkey. Well, you definitely want to see any strip act that has a monkey involved. Like you said, she had done the dance on Jerry Springer. You can go see her act online, I'm sure. But the idea that you can be a super successful guy, and look, I'm not saying he's like very attractive or anything like that, but you're successful, you've got money, you've got a good job. How do you get involved? Stripper. With a stripper that has a monkey that likes to host haunted house parties, which quite honestly might be the biggest red flag of all. The lady that's doing the haunted house on your street, you absolutely stay away from. Do not go in that person's garage. Do not come into their basement. Like that is a giant red flag, more so than being a stripper on Jerry Springer, which we don't shame sex workers, obviously, on this show, and more so than having an emotional support monkey. It's just the craziest story ever. And actually, believe it or not, apparently he is a candidate for the uh, for the vacant Washington state job, too. I would say that probably changed a little bit after I, this. It, it, it probably did. It Unless probably Washington did. is looking to change their uh, mascots. Well, you know, as long as he's vaccinated, that's all that seems to matter to him. The last guy only lost his job because of that. So as long as you're vaccinated, you can bring your stripper and your pet monkey and come up to Washington state and be with us. Well, the question is, if you're changing your mascot, though, do you go with the monkeys or do you go with the pole assassins? That's a good pole assassin would be a sick logo. Awesome. That would be all. Oh, my gosh. All the all the things you could do with that. My lands. WSU pole assassins. WSU pole assassins. But they could spell it. And she come out like they're assassinating even better. But then she can come out before the game while the band's playing and do a dance, bring the pole out and everything. When's the last time Washington State was ranked in the AP poll? It's probably been since the Ryan Leaf years, I would guess. Before that monkey was born. Before that monkey was born. That's exactly right. Oh, my word. That was a great story from this week when I saw it. it. I, I, it I fell over laughing. Truly was. If you weren't already caught up on that one, you're just living under a rock. Go search Jeff Banks and Pole Assassin. Pole Assassin. Yes, and indeed. give yourself a good laugh. Shout out I'm to Harambe. With the stripper. Since we're talking about dead monkeys. Um that's really all we got. Uh, we up. covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we covered a ton of ground there. We talked some Reds, some college basketball, some Bengals. Of course, the college football playoff rankings. We'll be back on Sunday night with our uh, Bengals podcast post game as the Bengals finish the first half of the season, head into a bye week with the Browns. A win gets them to six and three with some optimism for the second half, a loss. And my words, I can't imagine what that podcast will sound like. But you can listen to it. We'll drop it on Sunday night, Monday morning. So be sure to join us then. We'll be back with this podcast one week from today. For Rick Rory, I'm Richard Skinner. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly Pope edition presented by Ryan Keefer of Prime Lending.